This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Over the past two weeks, public sector unions in Wisconsin and other states have staged protests against some legislators' attempts to restrict collective bargaining power. In effect, taking away a union's right to negotiate over salary, seniority, pensions, health care, and other work-related issues. The clash has brought out supporters on both sides of the aisle, and it has set off debates about budget shortfalls, political posturing, and most of all, the role of unions in today's economy. Knowledge at Wharton asked Janice Balacci, Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics, and Peter Capelli, Director of Wharton's Center for Human Resources, to talk about what has been headlined crunch time for organized labor. Janice, Peter, thanks for joining us. So why is this issue so important? Peter, do you want to start? Well, I think it reminds us that elections have consequences, as they say, uh, and it reveals, in this case, uh, a rather huge divide in public opinion uh, between a model that said, you know, unions are sort of an accepted part of American context and a view that says they're not. And the latter has become more popular over time, obviously, in the Republican side. Uh, and we're seeing that play out. And one of the reasons why it's such a big issue is it's such a change in the status quo. It's not about bargaining uh, for better terms and conditions on the management side. It's about getting rid of the unions altogether with a stroke of the pen, which is something a generation ago would have never even been thought about doing. Janice? I think it's also reflective about elections, about a certain tension right now in the United States uh, with the idea that some people say, we just have to cut the budget. And if you cut a budget, who suffers those consequences? And the middle class feeling, how come they're the ones that are feeling the pain? Right. They're, they're talking about public opinion, Peter. There's the latest New York Times CBS poll came out uh, this morning that said actually a majority of Americans are opposed to cutting collective mm -hmm. bargaining rights, mm -hmm. and they're also opposed to cutting salary mm -hmm. and pension benefits, mm -hmm. et cetera, for, for the, uh, the unions. Um, would this poll have any effect on the Republican governor's attempts to curtail collective bargaining, or should it have an effect? Well, I, I think it, it should, uh, if they're smart politicians. You know, there's a lot of political intrigue behind these uh, cases, right, because the, uh, the unions, particularly in the public sector, are uh, politically very important, very powerful. If you were opposed to the Democratic Party, who mainly they support, uh, and you got rid of unions, you'd get rid of a lot of your opposition. Interesting, in Wisconsin, uh, two unions that supported the governor, the police and fire unions, uh, are not uh, the ones that he's thinking about cutting, which is pretty transparent, I think. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's a lot of interesting political intrigue behind this uh, as well. I think what's interesting about this poll is there part of the rhetoric from the governor and from those in favor of getting rid of the union's rights to to exist and bargain in this context, is the sense that um, public sectors have, employees now have more than private sector do and that that's not fair. Uh, and interesting that the polls suggest that that doesn't play that well with people, at least as of yet. Right. And talking about politics, the Ohio Senate is voting on a bill on Thursday to eliminate collective bargaining for everyone, including police and firemen. Oh, is that right? yeah. uh, Janice, yes. I think what you said was as surprising or important. I think the surprise is that some Republicans have calculated that the public doesn't have sympathy with unions, so unions are bad. What's surprising is that the public seems to have sympathy with the average working person. Uh, 
and seems to be fearful that we don't want to pull down the average working person. And that is a surprise because that's not the way it's been depicted. Right. Uh, there's also the perception among many that uh, union uh, wages and benefits are much better than non-union wages and benefits. I wonder, do you, either of you have any sort of evidence that this is true or not true or any knowledge of this? Oh, no, that's, that's certainly true. I mean, that's one of the reasons why you'd want to join a union. I think what's uh, interesting in this case is that the story about public sector employees and unionized ones in particular always was that, look, they, have, uh, they don't get the upside. You know, when the economy's booming, they don't get big wage increases, they don't get bonuses, they don't get opportunities to hop from company to company. But on the downside, they have job security that's very good, and they get uh, pensions, which are at least good for the salaries they make. So the interesting thing now is when the downside actually hits, uh, there's this effort to pull the plug on that. So, you know, it's not fair that you get these pensions and, and uh, job security. You ought to pay something for it, whereas I think the view was they were paying something for it. And the upside, they didn't get the upside that private sector employees do. But I think the downside really has hit now, at least according to what we're reading mm -hmm. in the papers. So. Right. Scott Walker's argument is there's absolutely nothing else they can do to, to, to lower their huge state deficit. This is true across every state, come, except for maybe Indiana. Right. Well, I think one of the things that they might do is try, right, <clears throat> that you could, you could say to the unions, here's what we have to do. We have no choice. Let's talk about, let's negotiate over this and see what's possible, rather than saying, I have no choice, therefore I'm going to get rid of the opposition here so that I can do it the way I want to. You know, if you were really just interested in cutting the cost, you'd start with, let's see if we could cut the cost. You might say, if there's, we're making no progress on this, I've got to do things unilaterally. But you wouldn't start by getting rid of your partner if you thought the whole issue was simply to try to work out something that would cut costs. I was going to say, I mean, that's the important part, because there's two sides to this, and sometimes they get merged. One is, do people have a right to join together to seek better terms and conditions of employment? And essentially, the governor is saying, no, you don't have that right. The second part is, well, do we have to sit down now and see what's the deal? And is the deal going to be worse for you than it was? Those are very different. One's a fundamental right. The other is what I call hardcore dollars and cents. A compromise position in all this would be for the unions to say, let, let us keep our, keep our collective bargaining uh, rights, and we will start talking about some concessions on wages and salaries. And in fact, the Wisconsin unions are already doing that, as are some unions. Is this a viable negotiating strategy, or is it the case where Republicans are going to say, aha, we've got them on the run, now let's really hit them hard? Well, I think if you were cynical, uh, you would say this was really clever on the part of uh, the governor in Wisconsin. Uh, to come out with an extremely aggressive position that says we're going to get rid of you altogether uh, and then back off from that and negotiate very tough concessions from the unions, uh, that would be, at least in the sense of hardball bargaining, that would be a pretty clever thing to do. Uh, it's not clear to me that that's, uh, that that's really the goal here. It would be sort of like the equivalent in the private sector of saying to your employees, which I think is illegal, you can tell me, uh, whether it is, that, look, we're going to close the plant. Um, and then coming back and saying, all right, well, maybe not if you can do X, Y, or Z. Right? So maybe it's, it's a clever bargaining well, position. Well, I was going to say, I mean, we'll know in a few weeks whether that was their bargaining position. Because as Peter said, right now the unions have already said, 
will enter and will probably take concessions. The AFL-CIO has said the point is to keep bargaining rights. So if the governor doesn't respond now, it's going to be pretty evident that he is out to destroy the union and to destroy people's ability to join together. He just wants to be able to dictate. So that, that raises the whole question about how just politically motivated this, this, these actions are. I mean, obviously the Democrats are big donors and big voters in, in the Democrat, for the Democrats. Republicans are being accused of, as you say, just wanting to kill the unions. Is that, does one have to be cynical to think that's what's going on? Or I, I'd say that, that you could be ideological uh, as well. I think on the Republican side, particularly on the, what is now, um, you know, more mainstream Republican view, but a generation ago was on the far right of the Republican view, uh, was the idea that it was improper to allow public sector employees as government servants to have this sort of right, that uh, you couldn't, you shouldn't be able to negotiate with the government because the government has the ultimate authority and a collective bargaining agreement shouldn't bind the legislature, for example, as to how they spend their money and things. So that was, you might say that's kind of a principled ideological argument. Um, it was something that all these states dealt with. Everybody heard that argument when they passed the laws in the first place, and they decided that, uh, in fact, this public sector was not that different than the private sector, and that the public sector management had their own advantages that the private sector doesn't have. For example, if you go on strike in the public sector, uh, the government actually makes money because they don't have to spend things and the tax revenue continues to come in. So I think what has changed is the uh, relative importance of those positions as politics have changed. So the people who said, you know, bargaining is an important right to have, people in power now say, no, it's not. Uh, and that argument about tying the hands of the legislature becomes, as a result, even more powerful. I'd say also that there's a big difference. We can take two governors in Pennsylvania and New Jersey who were just elected that are Republicans, and it was a change in party. And one governor is very tough talking, one Governor Christie of New Jersey, and he certainly wants concessions, but he hasn't said, I'm taking, I'm out to get back bargaining rights. And in Pennsylvania, the governor hasn't even done that. He's just like, life's going to go on, we're going to bargain as usual. So uh, I think when you look at the Republican Party, one also has to look at state-level politics um, and, and perhaps nationally, but, but I think national interests are looking at particular states as uh, vulnerable, if I can put it that way, as some might say the thin edge of the, of the wedge type of thing. Wisconsin is essentially rural, which is what people forget. Janice, do you think that, 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 that Governor Walker's uh, stance could backfire on him and, in, in fact, create more sympathy for public unions in his state and in the country? Oh, I do, because I, I think um, when he got elected in November, he didn't say anything about removing collective bargaining rights. So some people might say, wait a moment, within three months, this was a secret agenda you had. So that looks false right there. But secondly, this idea that the, your teachers, your people who collect the rubbish, these are average people who do have benefits, and you're trying to pull them down. This is unfair that the middle class is getting attacked again. And the middle class feels obviously very vulnerable now since our, our recent, you know, the financial crisis. It could backfire. Let me just read you a couple of figures. Um, in 1981, as we remember, Ronald Reagan fired 11,000 striking air traffic controllers. That year, according to the New York Times, 20 percent of U.S. workers belonged to a union. By last year, that figure had dropped to 11.9 percent. But more than half of those union members work in the public sector. What should last year was 36 percent unionized. 
In the private sector, the Times says, unionization has fallen below 7 percent. So, Peter, what do those numbers suggest to you? Uh, it's a very different story in the two sectors of the economy, and I think the uh, difference has to do with what management does. So in the public sector, management for the most part has not tried to resist union organizing. And part of the reason for that is they have more political power, the unions there. And as a result, management hasn't resisted. In the private sector, they obviously have resisted. And they've become much more aggressive um, in terms of resisting unions. I think also the political balance of power uh, changes the rights of management versus labor through court decisions, through National Labor Relations Board decisions. And over time, it's gotten easier in the private sector for management to resist unions. I mean, they can close a plant down and move it someplace else and start it up non-union, which they couldn't have done a generation ago. So, you know, I'd say that uh, what these figures tell us uh, has something to do with the, and a lot to do, with the uh, success of management um, practices in keeping unions out in the private sector. The different, same country, and you see very different experiences in the public sector and in the private sector. You know, it also shows, um, and this is quite in line with what Peter said, but one reason why the percentage in the private sector has gone down are the loss of manufacturing jobs. Manufacturing's left the United States. Not just unionized jobs, non-union too. So, it, as the country becomes more of a non-manufacturing labor force, that explains a lot of it besides the second issue that Peter uh, mentioned. I think it is fair, though, to say that the unions, uh, the union movement in the U.S. over the last generation or two really has kind of lost its leverage with the public. Some of that is it got outmaneuvered in terms of public relations uh, by, uh, by the business community. And I think also, they, frankly, they were not as good at offering what workers wanted as they had been in the past. They got, you know, some complacency. They didn't spend as much time or energy on organizing. They didn't focus on the sections of the economy that were growing. They stayed in manufacturing, which was shrinking. So a lot of this, in fairness to the, uh, to the management side, it wasn't all about management tactics. A lot of it is stumbling on the union side as well. Yeah. Uh, Janice, Republicans uh, say, some, some Republican governors say their states can't compete, cannot compete as well for jobs as those states with right-to-work laws. Is this a big factor in this debate? They say it, but actually the thing that attracts jobs is the cost of doing business in a state. And there are other items in the state budget that have nothing to do with unionization. For instance, if you say what percentage of the state budget is Medicaid, it's a huge portion of most state budgets. And the states have some ability to uh, set the level of Medicaid payments. Um, there's other costs of doing business. And they're much more influential, usually, uh, than the fact of whether they're right to work or not. Because as Peter mentioned already, companies have got much better at resisting unionization, firstly, improving their own HR practices. And secondly, the law has made it easier. So that's not really how they're choosing states. But just we might just back up and explain a little bit about what right to work yeah. laws mean, maybe you could do that. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, right to work laws. Because this is, pri we're now into the private sector, right? right? You know, this is, you could go into a very long discussion. Right to work means that you uh, cannot have a union shop, but it doesn't mean that you can't have unions that sign collective bargaining agreements with a company. So can you, quote unquote, compel people to be in a union if the union, when a union organizes 50% plus one of the workers must vote for the union to be certified. 
So it says that they can't compel everyone in that grouping to join the union or pay union dues. It does weaken a union, no doubt, but there are many examples uh, of unionized companies in right-to-work states. But the real point about you can't attract jobs would be costs. And that's not the big element in when, when states are competing, let's say, to, to attract a big manufacturing plant. But what, what is interesting about right-to-work laws is that they are really about gutting the union's leverage, right? Because the union is compelled by law to negotiate on behalf of everybody in the bargaining unit, whether you are paying union dues or not. Right. So you think about what the idea of a union uh, a right to work state means. It means allowing me as an employee to get the benefits of unionization without paying for them. And so the idea of that is really to weaken the unions financially. I and mean, it's not a particularly, I mean, there's no other particularly good reason for that, right? Except to, it's a political tactic for poking at the unions. Right. So unions call it free riders, but that's it. It allows free riders. Okay. Uh, Peter, to get back a comment you made about unions having become somewhat complacent, and um, there's probably a lot of politics that goes on among their own union leadership. Can we say that that unions have become antiquated in a way? And if that's true, how do you how do you bring them up? How do you update them for the 21st century? Well, I think if you said. Um if you were a worker thinking about uh, joining a union now, is it in your interest to do it? Would you get enough out of it? And, and I think the answer for that might very well be no right now, because um, the risks of joining a union, campaigning for a union, are pretty big. The risks of being fired. Uh, it's illegal to fire people for this, but it hasn't been very well enforced, and the penalties are trivial, and it's pretty well known that a lot of organizations do this. So, you know, uh, I might get fired for this. If the plant I'm working at or the place gets organized, there's a pretty good chance I'll never get a agreement from the union and the employer because the employers have uh, various ways of making that difficult to do. Um, so, you know, there's a pretty good chance I might get in trouble on my job security, might pay dues, might never get an agreement. Uh, and if I get an agreement and the plant is organized, there's a pretty good chance the company might try to operate it in such a way to eventually move it someplace else. So if you think about it in a, in a up and down way, is it in my interest to vote for union these days? Uh, the answer is probably no. Uh, but I'd say a lot of that has to do with the fact that management had, now has so much more power than they had a generation ago, and the unions haven't really found any way to counter that. So are they able to offer a compelling story to possible members, I'd say the answer at the moment is probably not. So in that sense, um, they are in some trouble and they are kind of antiquated in that sense. Uh, I agree. And I think one of the difficulties is that a way for them to modernize is foreclosed to them. You know, Peter and I once had a, at a lunchtime uh, talk, not didn't have a disagreement, but I was proposing that employees, that you can have consultative councils. You're a stakeholder, like a shareholder. You invest your human capital. You should have rights to consult. You should be given information. Um, and but, you need, but companies wouldn't be happy to do that, just like they didn't give shareholders information in 1928. So you need legislation. And the issue is, as Peter said, why would companies do that? 
So if the legislation would change, I would see more employees willing to opt for what I call this more cooperative view of representation. But we as a country haven't changed our legislation since the basic framework is 1935, which really is antiquated. So and it, it is illegal to do that That's now, right. right? Yeah. You yeah. couldn't do it even if you, you wanted. You can't. I was gonna, it would be too technical, but it's illegal right, yeah. right now. Okay, interesting. Well, my last question is, what do you think is going to happen in Wisconsin? What will be the, mm. what will be the end of this? of this saga as we're witnessing it? Well, I think it uh, is going to turn on the political calculations of, of the governor, frankly. I think um, uh, his approach certainly has rallied uh, a Republican base, a particular section of the Republican Party, um, and that's probably helped him a lot in terms of the internal politics. I think in the broader community, as you reported from the poll uh, today, uh, it may actually get him into some trouble. So I think he's probably making a political calculation. Are my concerns primarily inside my party or are my concerns primarily uh, in the broader voting group? And my guess is that uh, if it's the former, he'll plunge ahead with this and figures even if he ultimately can't get it through, he wins by taking a hard line. If it's the latter, I think he'll back off, negotiate some compromises and get back to work. Janice? I don't know what will happen in Wisconsin, I, because I don't know Wisconsin well enough. I agree with this analysis. It'll be an interesting signal for the rest of the country. I do think already some governors in certain states have said, no way am I going to walk that path. I don't want to start a war in my state. And that's looking at the voters as a whole. So Pennsylvania might be one. It just isn't worth it. But in any individual state, perhaps it is worth it for that governor. Good. Well, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.